This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. I'm not Matt Chorley. I'm still Patrick Maguire with you till the end of this week. Today, we're asking, why are young men turning right when young women are turning to the left? It's the question that could redefine our politics and we're going to answer it today. Is it all Andrew Tate's fault? More on that to come, but before then, it's time for a clip from the latest episode of How to Win an Election. Strike up the band. Before we do some uh, questions that people have been sent in, it seems that Keir Starman's been listening to the podcast, Peter, because you told him to drop the £28 billion, and now he has. <laughs> um, all, all I know is that it's as well to get ahead of the curve in these matters. <laughs> if only he had done. <laughs> get ahead of the curves just to explore all that unexploded ordnance that's mm. lurking just below the surface and make sure that it's removed before it goes off on in your face in, in an election campaign. I mean, Great Mandelson principle. Fine. He is still going to become Prime Minister at the end of the year, but he only had one policy <laughs> and now he's dropped it. Um, you know, you might have thought it through a little bit before. I, I have been in this position, you know, I accept because the Conservative Party under William Hague advanced the tax guarantee and then realised it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And in those circumstances, the best thing to do is probably to drop it rather than to go into an election doing it. But I think it does raise some questions, um, which maybe Labour doesn't have to answer to win, but it certainly will have to answer to govern w- w- about what it is that Keir Starmer really thinks. And I... and you know where he is uh, and where his team is so you know they're not going to come old... out with where is the plan are you that sunak line that he well, I, I look the reason every the, other the reason they've come up with that um question is because they clearly know that that's what the focus groups ask it's 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 labor's one weakness the thing that might soften their vote in you know as you know i think that labor win the election i just said but i you know but i do think that if you're the conservative party of course you'll press on that issue and that exact phrase comes out of focus groups so of course they press on it that's just professional campaigning it's interesting that you know jeremy hunt said uh, on twitter it, it, well or whatever it's called you know that no, he's uh, called jeremy hunt 
<laughs> today. But, uh, he said, oh, after however many years in opposition, all Labour can do is copy the Conservative Party on economic policy. You think, well, hang on, isn't that the Keir Starmer line? It's, it, they've got... That is right, that there is that attack that wears the plan. But I think the Conservative Party, again, is in such a tangle that they've jumbled that up with. The only plan you've got is the same as our plan, which is... No plan Not at really all. Very actually. scary. <laughs> it was the same problem with New Labour, New Danger, the campaign in '97. The, the Conservative Party could never, you know, was a lot of the time sort of saying the danger is they're copying us, and you think, well, why is that? Why would that <laughs> be a danger? So you're right. I think I think for the Conservative Party to land this, they'd have to be quite disciplined. I think actually, to be fair, because I've been very critical of some of the campaign things that I like the party conference strategy, they have been pretty relentless about de- about the 28 billion, repeating it over and over again. And so, and Labour has under this kind of pressure, it has sort of buckled on it. Um, and though by itself this is not enough to change the to change the election result it doesn't help Keir Starmer's leadership ratings which are one of the things that matter I suspect we'll find it's a it's a rounding error most people will not have noticed he had the policy most people won't notice that he's abandoned it but it's certainly you know it's not the uh, episode of his uh, opposition leadership he'll look back on with the greatest fondness in the 1980s uh, when I started off in this lark I had a rule. I had a rule. This business we call show. <laughs> Politics, <laughs> campaigns, how to win an election. Um, I had a rule which said, you know, when something happens to you and some great Tory piece of artillery bombardment opens up in front of you and you're momentarily dazed and confused as to, you know, how to react to it. I said, if in doubt, say nout, but not for long. <laughs> and... Mr. Starmer and his team seem to have applied half that rule. <laughs> if in doubt, say now, which is right. You can marshal the facts, you work out what your policy is, make sure it's joined up, and then nibble, nimbly uh, articulate it. But if you, if you delay, you'll find yourself dragged halfway around the stadium behind the Tory chariot, you know, before you open your mouth, and it, it just looks terrible. So I do agree they were right to take their time to sort out the policy. Uh, I just think it could have been done a little quicker. That was a little taster of the latest episode of How to Win an Election. Remember, you can listen to those three experts, Danny Finkelstein, Peter Mandelson and Polly McKenzie, in full wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search How to Win an Election. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Why are young men turning to the right? Historically, the big divide in politics was class, then it was age, but now might it be gender? The accepted wisdom has always been that the young are more liberal, idealistic and radical than their parents, becoming inevitably more conservative as they age. It's a concept succinctly explained by none other than the singer-slash-actress Holly Valance at Liz Truss's popular Conservatives launch last week. Everyone starts off as a lefty and then wakes up at some point after you start either making money, working, trying to run a business, trying to buy a home and then realise what crap ideas they all are and then you go to the right. But new research shows that young men are becoming increasingly conservative while their female counterparts are becoming more and more progressive. What explains this? Is it social media? And the stars... Young men follow thereon. Well, Mr Beast is the most followed YouTuber on the entire platform. He has more than 238 million fans and his core audience is teenage boys. I don't really get along with women if like, they don't love learning, they're not obsessive, they don't have a hobby, they don't like... Their jo- like there are just certain things where if you have these traits, we get along really well. Yeah. And if you don't, like, it's impossible for us to hang out. Meanwhile, Andrew Tate has become notorious for his new brand of modern misogyny. He has a huge male audience. So I think my sister is my her husband's property, yes. When a bride is walking down the aisle to marry the groom, the father walks next to her and gives her away. True or false? And the podcaster Joe Rogan, perhaps the biggest in the world, has amassed a huge audience urging young men not to become feminists. Yeah, there's probably a lot of different reasons why men become feminists, and very few of them are good. Creepy little dudes that are trying to get laid, and they're not attractive to women. So Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out a way to become attractive to women. So maybe it's unsurprising that young men are increasingly turning their backs on feminism and progressive left-wing ideas. Here's new Labour mastermind Peter Mandelson talking about this very issue on how to win an election. Young women, over the last decade, what's developed is a pattern of voting in which young women are more progressive, they've been on a more sort of liberalising journey, perhaps it's a bit of me too, I don't know what, Uh, they tend towards, you know, the Green Party or whatever, and that young men, particularly young white men, are not on this liberalising journey you know, to the, in, in, in the same way or to the same extent. Indeed, there's a, there's a sort of growing tide of resentment amongst young men and that they're actually turning, leaning more towards, you know, Reform UK. They're going more towards the right. So something is happening amongst young people and something may be happening between young men as opposed to young women and it could develop as quite an electoral phenomenon. So what is behind this phenomenon, as Peter Mandelson puts it, and how significant could it be electorally in the months and years to come? To answer that question, I'm joined by Dr Alice Evans. She's a visiting fellow at Stanford University and one of the leading researchers on this topic. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. So you've coined the term the great gender divergence. What does that mean? And do you recognise some of what Peter Mandelson was saying there about resentment, young men not joining their female counterparts on what he called the great liberalising journey? 
Right. So let me clarify. This gender divide whereby women are becoming increasingly progressive, as you said, you know, being more concerned about gender and racial bias. This is happening in many countries, whereas young men are increasingly expressing concerns that gains to women's rights come at men's expense. And in many European countries, young men are expressing concerns that immigrants, foreigners pose a threat to national local culture. So I just wanted to clarify when that we when we said that young men are becoming more conservative that's not true in the UK where young the young people in general are not voting conservative especially post Brexit. So there's there is it, it depends slightly on the questions that we ask like young men expressing what we call as you said this modern sexism this concerns that women's gains are coming at men's expense. So it's not necessarily that they're voting Tory in the UK just to clarify. Well no when I say conservative I mean with a small see uh, espousing sorry, what you sorry, might sorry. call no no it's a it, you know it, it makes sense a sort of small c conservative values and that's an interesting question to which will come why this isn't necessarily going to find electoral expression at the la- uh, the next uh, general election or maybe it will maybe it will in elections to come but let's tackle the divergence as it's happening in right. the here and yeah. now what what do you think explains this trend i mean you put it pretty succinctly there is it a case of identity politics women's rights are at the forefront of a lot of our cultural debates now and young men a certain subset of young men as peter mandelson was saying there feel frozen out and resentful so i think there are three major likely explanations one about economic stagnation two about technology and shifts in culture and then three the cultural entrepreneurs whether that's mr beast or andrew tate so perhaps if you and i first of all talk about economics mm, so a lot of re- a lot of research shows that across europe and the us in places where there's been economic stagnation so rising unemployment or in in spain where there's lots of temporary employment or italy where young men are still 30 and still living with their parents so young men who are insecure in insecure jobs unable to get a house of their own basically unable to achieve status so if house prices are rocketing and labor markets are crappy then people tend to have what we call zero-sum mentalities. So this is a paper by Nathan Nunn and others, and they show that in places of economic stagnation, people tend to see the world in this as a fixed basket of goods. And if you, Patrick, take, say, three apples, that means fewer apples for me. So there's this sense of resentment and hostility so that it's women or foreigners taking stuff that's ours. So it sort of fuels this sense of resentment and and angst. So that's the economic. So systematically, in those kinds of economically stagnant places, people are more likely to vote for right-wing parties or express sort of anti-immigrant or anti-female ideas. In places with high unemployment, men are more likely to say that women's gains come at men's expense. And so we address the economics. What's the next big issue? Okay, so I think another big issue is technology and i think there are three aspects here so over the past 30 40 years the media has increasingly highlighted negative things in order to attract viewers oh you've never seen this you know look what's happened here this is terrible so one is increased negativity so for example if foreigners or immigrants are doing something that because that is highlighted because corporations want to attract viewers secondly there because people are increasingly on their phones and glued in 
any event, any terrorist attack anywhere in Europe can attract viewers, can make uh, German Twitter users adopt the language of the AFD. So because things are so visceral in our in our faces, that can create the perception of an immediate threat. And then because people see these things, they can self-select into social media filter bubbles where they're hearing all of the same kinds of things. Oh, you know, these immigrants are taking our jobs or women are doing this or women are so greedy and grasping. So if you already feel that economic resentment, then you might choose to listen to those kinds of ideas. And then all you're hearing is everyone else agreeing with you. And social media companies do this to please their users to keep them hooked, and then they send them polarizing content from the other side. Oh, so you never guess what this, you know, radical feminist said. And, you know, she may be a very vocal extremist minority that does not represent women in general, but all these things, all these sensationalizing things create shock and uproar and pe- and get, get clicks. So the sensational stuff gets a lot of clicks. So the, te- the technological changes are one, more negative stuff. Two, you know, stuff from all over the world becomes much more visceral and immediate. And then third, we get sucked into these social media filter bubbles where we're not necessarily, we're, we're receiving a very blinkered view of the rest of the world and not exposed to debate and contestation. Uh, and that, I assume, is where, as you put it, the technological entrepreneurs come in your andrew tates your joe rogan's your mr beasts and what i'd like to ask you though alice the interesting thing there is they are tapping into the social media stuff as an expression of what we first spoke about which is a real sense of economic alienation in some cases that the system as it is the economic and political system isn't working and this is a long story of you know, a shift away from heavy collective industries to a slightly more insecure economy. You know, is it any surprise that people are turning to parties who present very easy and easily understandable answers, even though they're ones with which many people disagree? And how can parties, you know, seize the initiative back from what their critics may call the populist right on this issue, given that they are speaking to very real concerns? Yes, absolutely. These concerns are real. So, for example, in England, people in their 20s and 30s, it's incredibly tough to get onto the housing ladder unless you're sitting on an enormous wad of inherited wealth. Right. So there there are very real economic grievances. And it's and if you're in a struggling period, in a struggling time, yes, people may well be swayed by people who claim to you know, blame the others. It's the fault of those other people. So I was recently in Poland where Mensen is really popular and he he's very charismatic. He connects to voters and he has these beer halls um, talking to young men about their problems and blaming it on mass immigration, like the Ukrainian refugees, for example. Um, and so I think the fundamental issue is the economics, right? Because as long as there is economic stagnation, then people are going to have these zero-sum mentalities of feeling hostile towards others, resenting them for taking our stuff. Well, I just and, the, and those. Uh, sorry, sorry, Alice. Just a, just a final thought. You know, given yeah. that parties of, you know, you broadly speaking, the left are now sort of having a bit of a nervous breakdown over the extent to which they can respond to that sort of economic resentment on the part of young men Mm. while also Mm. sticking to their traditionally liberal views on questions of identity and culture how easy do you think it will be for parties in future to straddle both of both of those things 
Right. So that's a great point. And one thing I should clarify is it's not necessarily the case that all young men are expressing their hostility. So young men who are university educated and are thriving in employment, they're doing great and they're more likely to express very liberal gender equal beliefs. But it's especially the men who are struggling and having a tough time. But I also think that when we talk about prediction, we can think about, well, you know, Britain is a democracy and we can do stuff. So if we think that technology is rigging people's perceptions and creating this distorted view of the world subject to, you know, corporate algorithms, that's something that we can change. That's something that we can do something about. You know, we don't need to necessarily think about the after effects of elections, but what we as British citizens can do to change the game. Well, Dr. Alice Evans, visiting fellow at Stanford University, thanks very much for joining us to take us on a whistle-stop world tour of how young men, some young men, are feeling and turning to the right. Economic resentment, technological advances and, well, let's be honest, quite charismatic people taking advantage of both of them. Having heard why women and young men are dividing, with young women more likely to support progressive parties in much of the world than young men, what should our politicians do about it? Well, let's bring in the Conservative MP for Don Valley, Nick Fletcher. Hello, Nick. Morning. So you've been listening to our discussion today. Do you recognise much of what you've heard about growing resentment among young men, a system they feel doesn't work for them, a sort of prevailing cultural narrative that makes them feel resentful? Do you recognise all of that? And do you think that's behind the sort of divergence we're starting to see in, in public opinion, particularly in the, in the rest of the world and perhaps soon in Britain too? I think um, there's a, there's bound to be elements of that there. I mean, in through the King's College survey, 61% of the boys didn't agree with what uh, Andrew Tate had said. So I don't think it's um, exactly as, uh, as as you've set it out there. But I do genuinely believe that there's been a huge push um, for on feminism. And I think that's been a, a good thing over this last century. It was obviously needed. And I think it's uh, I think it's definitely done uh, done done the country well uh, and the world well. I think we've heard uh, we've had seen, seen some fantastic women come forward and do some wonderful things, which is great. But I think over this last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, we've definitely seen working class boys being left behind. And there's been a there's been an approach there that boys are all okay and it'll be fine. Uh, when, and they can just—they'll always do well. And we need to push, 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 push for the for, for girls and, and for women. And unfortunately, there's a certain cohort of young boys that have been that have been left behind. Uh, and they're the ones that I've been particularly spending my time trying to look at, trying to help, trying to find out what has actually gone wrong. And one of the main issues I believe has been the lack of male role models. Uh, for these young boys and that's why they've, uh, they've they've taken to people like Andrew Tate they've needed a role model they've needed somebody to look up to and uh, social media has played a huge part in that and when characters come along like Andrew Tate that seems to have all the nice clothes nice cars and that's somebody that these young young boys and especially young men look up to and then that can cause the problems that we uh, that we do see well, it's, it's interesting you talk about male role models. I've just got a text from listener Scott who actually references a speech you made in the Commons a while ago. He said, please ask Nick Fletcher if he still blames a female Doctor Who for young men committing crimes. I remember that speech. You were basically making the point you just did now, which is to say there are too few positive role models in what you'd call popular culture on TV screens. And so, as you just said, it's no surprise that 
people turn to slightly more nefarious quarters. I mean, what 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 do you say to that? Is is that a misrepresentation of your views? Do you think, or is there a serious point there? Yeah, I mean, people needed to have uh, listened to the entire speech and what I was saying. I think the best role model that any young person can have, young young boy can have, especially is his dad. Uh, and we've got 2.6 million separated families out there with 4 million children. 80% of the children uh, will be with mums. And dad often struggles to have that influence on uh, on his children. So these young boys do search out for uh, for, for male role models and what I was trying to say in that speech there is that an awful lot of the typical male role models that you see on TV which used to do good things and were always the um, the ones to look up to have been ta- have been moved away a lot of these have, have moved over and women have taken these roles and the lots of roles that are out there reference Peaky Blinders in there uh, and men that are not particularly living what we call a, a good life and that's all I was trying to say in that we have to be careful. Social media and TV has a huge influence on young people, and we need we need good male role models uh, for our boys and our young men to look up to, to aspire to. And that way, uh, if we have if we have if we have these good male role models, then we'll end up with good uh, good men in life who actually want to help women, and women will want to help men too. It's a, it, it helps society as a whole. When men do well, women do well. When women do well men do well. Why wouldn't we want that? But what does this translate to in policy terms, in concrete policy terms, Nick? I have, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of what, say, the, the new Conservatives from your party would be saying on, on that sort of issue, sort of more family-oriented policies, that sort of thing. You've called for a minister for men. I mean, it's all very well and good talking about this stuff. But what can the Conservative Party do? What can mainstream parties in this country do to stop young men turning off the political process entirely or, you know, going to parties of the more radical right as they seem to be doing on the continent? Well, we need to look out for men, just like we look out for women. We've got a women's minister. We've got a minister for women in cabinet too. We've got a women's health strategy. And this Conservative government, through campaigning for myself and many other colleagues, over the, over the last few years, are actually moving in the right direction. We've now got uh, a minister, uh, an ambassador for men's health. There's a men's task force uh, coming forward, which is asking why men are not accessing uh, the health system that they should be. So there's positive moves in, the, uh, in, in this way. But I genuinely do believe that we need a minister for men and we need a men's health strategy and we need to look how men's role has changed over the last 10, 20, 50 years and how we can help men cope with that change. And I think there's room for everybody in society. I don't think if men win, um, women lose, or if women win, men lose. I don't think that's how it should be. As I say, we can think two thoughts at once. We can help women, but how does this affect men? We can help men. How does this affect women? And I think that's just the narrative that we've got to get over there. And we've also got to look for the good in both as well. There will be toxic men out there, there's bound to be, but there'll be toxic women too. What we need to do is we need to speak up both boys and girls and we need to expect the best of everybody in society. If we continually tell people that they're bad, I mean, there was a survey that said 40% of 16 to 18-year-old boys have been told in school that they're a problem to society. That can't be right, can it? We shouldn't be saying that. We should be expecting the best of our boys and the best of our young men. And that way, we have a happier life for women and girls 
and vice versa. It's really interesting, Nick, looking at some of the texts we're getting about this because clearly this is an argument and you you say it's a polarising narrative. That really does divide people. I got a text uh, from Eving in Temple who says this guy is ringing in from 1952, but Beth in Bath says the most impoverished, disadvantaged segment of the society is white working class men. Look at the data, but of course it's not sexy to represent them. As a result, they're being left behind in this woke period we live in, which has zero focus on them. So as you say, it's really interesting how polarising this narrative is. And it does make you think sometimes, is there any way of bridging the divide within mainstream politics given, as Alice Evans was saying earlier, everything we know about algorithms and social media pushing people to the extremes. Well, let's bring in longtime feminist and Labour peer Diane Hayter, Baroness Hayter. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, do you agree, Diane, with the analysis that as we look forward that gender in this new sort of slightly more polarised age could become a defining divide as class and age can be well um i hope i hope not um in that i think that what we want is a sort of politics that takes us both forward i don't think i i disagree a lot with with your 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 speaker before that we don't want to see that women getting advance is at may men's cost price nor nor vice versa so i hope we can move forward um in lockstep but the problem is that the social media has enabled uh, the culture that has been referred to, which is quite dehumanizing to women. Um, you know, my generation of feminists, and I, you have to remember, people can't see me, that I'm actually very, very old. But So my generation of uh, feminists, we were all about saying that what we wore and how we dressed and how we did our hair wasn't as important as what we had to give, you know, and, and what our abilities were. And that was relatively easy in those days. I think the problem with social media, it has reverted to the idea that women's looks are the most, almost the most important, the most noticeable thing about women. Um, so I think social media has a lot to do with that. Uh, and unless we deal with that, we will continue what, what's been growing is a pretty toxic atmosphere about, I'm afraid we'll have to talk about sex and sexualization of young women. And that that sort of divides the genders in a way that my generation of feminism was trying to do the opposite. We were trying to, if you like, be closer to, to men and not be seen as, you know, two races apart. Um, so I do think there's a challenge and it is younger women because that sort of body image is in front of them that are really feeling the impact on this. So whilst I, I hear what Nick Fletcher says, that the most disadvantaged group, I think he said, were white working class men, I think he said. Um, actually, I think it's young women growing up today that have got the biggest challenges against them. And do you... Do you think, Diane, if you drill down, in, if one drills down into the polling, yeah, the polling is very good for the Labour Party at the minute, but it's quite striking that their support among young men is always lower than it is now among young women. That's an inversion of what we would have seen historically when Labour was the party of, you know, organised labour and collectivised male-heavy industries. What, why do you think that is? Why do you think Labour has become a more natural home for female voters than, than men? Um, well, the, the, one of the reasons, of course, is that Labour has, over some years now, been
been much more um, active in promoting women's rights uh, at, at work um, and it's concentrating on issues like child care, um, but also, um, the, you know, the maternity rights, time off to have a baby and, and things like that. So in a sense, we've perhaps concentrated very much on a group that was left behind, in other words, women at the workplace. Um, and therefore, we've been seen as very attractive, I think, to, to women starting out, not just in their careers, but in their family life, feeling that there's a bit more potential of wraparound care. So we have, I think, brought women um, m much more into the labor, labor sphere than they were historically. I think, well, I think the problem about, about men is that traditionally we sort of relied on very high trade union membership. So the group that Nick has, has referred to, of white working class men, I, I don't like that title, but you know, I understand what he's getting at. They came to labor via their membership of trade unions. And that was a very active part of their political activity, which then bore fruit in the Labour Party. Unfortunately, Labour um, trade union membership has, has declined a lot, partly because there aren't big industries anymore and for a whole lot of other reasons. So one of the major ways of bringing young men into the Labour movement, unfortunately because of the um, fall in union membership, has declined. And we've got to make, make those paths there again. And, and just finally, Diane, yes or no, what do you say to Nick's suggestion for a minister to men? Good idea, bad idea? Bad idea. I think all the other ministers look after men pretty well. Um, I think we should try and see ourselves as people um, and actually not divide ourselves. There are, of course, men's health issues, just as there are women's health issues, but that should be for the Department of Health to deal with and so on. Um, but actually, if we're talking about housing or education, both parents should be involved in those sorts of issues. So I hope we, we wed more together um, and, and, and not have um, someone stand standing up simply for men. So there you have it. That's why young men are turning right just as young women turn left. We'll have much more for you tomorrow, but in the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information